What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Indirect Message. When it comes to questionable behaviors on social media, there are plenty to choose from. We've talked about a few of them here before, like cancel culture, the monetization of our attention, and filtering our selfies beyond recognition. But one of the more complex behaviors out there is a phenomenon dubbed virtue signaling. You've probably seen it before where people, usually in political conversations, attempt to portray themselves as the most righteous and holy of the bunch, no matter the cost. Because this behavior has an enormous influence on political discourse and social justice activism, I thought it was worth a closer look. And who better for a chat than a philosopher who wrote one of the first evidence-based books on this phenomenon, Dr. Brandon Warmke. He's a philosophy professor at Bowling Green State University and co-author of the book Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. It's an incredibly practical and accessible book and one that I'd recommend to anybody who is interested in the state of the discourse on social media. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You're coming at this as a as a philosopher, which I find kind of interesting. I mean, does that inform the way that you're approaching this issue of virtue signaling? Yeah, I am a philosopher, and we often think about these issues in terms of, you know, politics, what's helpful politically, or we think of it in terms of power. But a philosopher, you know, I guess we care about two things really deeply, and one is clarity, and the other is the moral issues. You know, what are the moral arguments uh, at play for how we speak to one another about controversial issues. And so, you know, philosophers can be very annoying because, <laughs> you know, we ask, we ask lots of questions. One thing that a philosopher can do is show that sometimes the things that we think are obvious aren't really obvious at all. Yeah. Yeah. Especially about morality. It's very complex. You do mention that this is something that happens on both sides of the political aisle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not unique to the left or the right, but I really strongly associate this with lefty conversations. Is it more common there or is that just because I'm more involved in those conversations? Yeah, that's a good question. So we have done some research on status seeking and public discourse. And as far as we can tell, people's motivations to status seek using morality or using moral talk is evenly distributed across the right and the left. So you know, if you're a run-of-the-mill, say, Republican or a run-of-the-mill Democrat, you're, chances are you're not going to grandstand more than the other. What we did find, though, is that the more extreme you are on either the right or the left, the more likely it is that you're probably grandstanding. So if you think of it in terms of like a U-curve, like, you know, if you're a boring centrist, you know, well, first of all, you're probably not on Twitter in the first place. You probably don't have a desire to use politics for this sort of like reputation management and self-promotion. But the further you go out to the extremes, the further you see politics as a central part of who you are, the more likely you are to use these conversations to prop yourself up, to make yourself look good. I think there is an explanation for why people feel like they see it more on the left. If you look at, say, just the demographics of Twitter, for example, these are these are very 
left and progressive spaces. And so it's just more likely that you're yeah. going to see grandstanding from the left than you are grandstanding from the right. Yeah, being younger too. I think people think of this set of behaviors as virtue signaling. Are you making a meaningful distinction here with the term grandstanding or do you kind of use these terms interchangeably? When we started writing on grandstanding, what we call grandstanding, that, that was the only term that was in the air. I mean, if you look at the term virtue signaling, it looked like it came into public consciousness around 2015, 2016. We think our term is preferable. Now, for most people, it's, you know, these terms are interchangeable. I think that what most people have in mind with virtue signaling is just what we call grandstanding. It's showy moral talk that's aimed at a vanity project, trying to use morality and politics to make yourself look good and mm-hmm. um, and impress other people. And someone accuses you of virtue signaling and you say, well, look, I was just doing something good. What could possibly be wrong with actually being seen doing something virtuous? And But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is something more deliberate, more intentional, where people actually go into discourse at some level of awareness wanting to be seen as morally impressive, wanting to be seen on the side of angels. And so grandstanding, that's just what grandstanding is. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an intentionally showy behavior aimed at getting attention. And mm. virtue signaling, it's just ambiguous. Now, I also realize that I'm fighting an uphill battle here. I mean, everyone we talk to, and I don't blame them. They say, oh, oh, you mean virtue signaling? And I, and I shake my head yeah. and say, yes, I absolutely. mean, once a term gets into the popular vernacular, it's hard to change. That's right. <laughs> Especially because it became such a useful term in the culture war. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this thing happened with gaslighting too. So like, if you look at the psychological literature, there's a real phenomenon in psychology called gaslighting. It's a real thing. It's psychological abuse. But now the way people use gaslighting, it's just like you disagreeing with me. Yeah, I feel like that's a, a broader problem. Um, just the the meanings of words are constantly being redefined. And in my opinion, they, they're used too broadly sometimes. Violence and harm and trauma. Like let's let's use those words more accurately because otherwise it can cause us to feel a little bit more apathetic about those accusations because people don't take them as, they don't mean as much, right? They don't carry the same intensity. That's right. Um, but that's a, that's a whole other can. Well, it's, I mean, you're right to point that out in relation to grandstanding because think about what grandstanding is. Grandstanding is using morality or these moral terms to get attention. And one way to get attention is to use these terms that everyone knows are serious terms. You know, abuse, violence, it's, you know, it's like a big a siren that you put up on top of your house and says, this is serious. And then you show up and you're like, wait, what? Like, that's not, okay, that's bad, but that's not, that's not violence. And so, but it is an easy way for people to get attention. There's a kind of crying, the boy who cried wolf problem here. So that actually is, I think, a helpful leeway into, I want to just talk about you know, what what specific behaviors we're looking at here. And you guys lay this out very clearly in the book. Let's go through the five. I think what you were just describing or what we were just talking about, would you put that under the banner of like ramping up using more and more extreme and strong language and statements about an issue? Yeah. So one way that grandstanding shows up in public discourse is a phenomenon that you 
that you call ramping up. And ramping up is basically when moral discourse takes the form of a moral arms race, where people are just simply trying to outdo one another. And, and so they turn moral discourse into this competition, right? So you can imagine, so someone says, uh, you know, I heard that thing that Lacey Green said on her podcast that was disgusting, okay? And then someone else says, are you kidding me? If you think that was merely disgusting, I don't want anything to have, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with you. That was literal violence. And then someone else jumps in and says, does anyone know the law on this, on this issue? Is there a way to get uh, this despicable and uh and fascist podcast from being uh, taken off spotify or whatever okay so you know if you've spent like 10 minutes online you've seen this sort of behavior oh, yeah. and all the time and there's actually a psychological sort of mechanism that's at play and it's what psychologists call social comparison so here's the basic idea look if i think of myself as caring deeply for say the poor i can retain that image of myself and then other people express how much they care or their views about how to solve the housing crisis or whatever. And so in order to retain my position in the group as a kind of paragon of caring for the poor or whatever, uh, I have to say something stronger than they said. Or, or I can let them sort of have pride of place. Because we think of ourselves so deeply in relation and in comparison to others, it's just very tempting for lots of people to outdo others. And that doesn't always mean they don't believe what they say. Um, in the moment, they might convince themselves this is true because after all, this is the most moral thing to say. And so it has to be true. Um, and then there's this phenomenon that we call piling on. Uh-huh. And My favorite. <laughs> your favorite. You know, I love the pile on. Yeah, it's I, just awesome. I think, you've, <laughs> I think you've probably had some experience with this. And uh, so we actually named this before I think piling on kind of came became a thing. And uh, I mean, it was like the leading edge of like these monster sort of uh, orgies of like moral condemnation and and doxing and shaming. And so piling on, basically, it can happen both in a negative way and a positive way. But the basic idea is that you're joining in on what others have said to impress other people. You're, you want to be seen as one of the vanguard of the moral, you know, pure. And so Mm -hmm. you join in to make yourself seen. Uh, I wasn't silent when Lacey said, you know, the word dork. And so I have to stand up for, you know, dorks everywhere and sort of like (laughs) defend the dorks. And so you often see it negatively, but you, there's often, there's also positive piling on which sounds weird but it's basic idea is like someone does something pretty costless takes a cheap talk stand that's praised by all their friends and then everyone chimes in and says oh this is brilliant you are amazing like this is you are stunning you know the stunning and brave sort of like meme now it's like there are there is positive piling on where basically people want to be seen not as shaming or blaming bad people, but praising, right. Yeah. But praising the right people and so on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's piling on. And then there's what we call, uh, and I have to say, we named this before our previous president. So this is not anything to do with the 45th president, but we have this phenomenon called trumping up and it's based on like trumping up charges, like in the court of law or whatever. And this is a princess in the P type phenomenon. So, you know, the princess in the P there's this, 
you know, uh, Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. You want to test the test the royal qualities of this potential princess, and she can actually feel a tiny pea underneath twenty mattresses and twenty beds, and that shows how how exceptional her royal credentials are. And people do this with morality; they they concoct moral problems to show their moral sensitivity. Um, yeah. you know, the basic idea is that what falls below the moral vision of the hoi polloi does not fall below my moral gaze. Like I can see things, Lacey, I can see moral problems that you can't even imagine that you can't even like, even if I told you it was a problem, you would deny that it was a problem. This is big. I'm sure you're aware of this, like in the young adult literature um, crowd right now, where all these young adult novels have all these like pylons you know, if you're the person who can find in this novel for teens the one passage that's like actually a dog whistle or fascism or something, then then you like you win the prize. Like you're the one mm-hmm. who has the most sensitive moral compass. This is something that I see um, has, I think, really harmed the conversation about a lot of social justice issues because it kind of when you start trying to look for things really hard right you're really digging to show that you're so sensitive and you know so in tune it again it sort of makes these issues seem like they're just about little nitpicky non-issues is it just motivated by people wanting to feel like you know morally superior or is there more to this it just feels more complex somehow that's a, that's a nice question. Uh, it's a, I think it's a complex question. I'm going to give you a simple answer. This, the, the reason why I think you see so much of it, and it seems to be uh, just like the default position for a lot of people's moral behavior, is that it gets rewarded. Like, you know, I, I rooted through, you know, years of your podcast, Lacey, and I find like this one thing you said, you know, and as you know, like when, like when you talk for a living, you say stuff that you regret, not necessarily bad <laughs> yeah. stuff, but like, oh, I wouldn't have put it that way. Okay. Yeah. And, and then if, you know, if I can root around through all that and find something and then blast it on Twitter, make it sound really bad. And I get a hundred retweets and a thousand likes for it. I'm going to keep doing it. And other people yeah. are going to see that's a way to get attention and they're mm-hmm. going to do it too. And mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a massive what economists philosophers call a collective action problem because you can't solve the problem by just getting one person to stop doing it and the incentives are there for everyone i mean we you and i both know the things that you could go on twitter right now and say and get like you i mean you have like (laughs) a lot more followers than i do but you could like get a thousand like retweets you know the things that you could say and we all do we all know the things that we can say and for some people that temptation is just really strong (laughs) <laughs> I see. Yeah. I, I have another theory that I'd sure. love your thoughts on yeah. <laughs> about this phenomenon. I At least in the feminist philosophy sphere, there is, I think, it's almost incentivized to go looking for, you know, every tiny little thing. There's this microaggressions concept that has um, emerged in the past 10 years or so. I think there was a switch from people looking to the law and policy as the arbiter of equality to policing individual people. Mm. Um, Because there was a little bit of a shift in the rhetoric when I was around the time I was in college where, you know, 
yes, there are systems of oppression, but those systems are made up of individual people. And so if we're going to smash the system, we need to find those people and, you know, find all of the ways that they're contributing to it. Um, and I noticed in tandem with that little rhetorical shift that happened, um, there was a lot more sort of scrutinizing and put holding up, you know, the magnifying glass mm -hmm. to every little thing. And really a distraction from some of the bigger um, social problems that have a tremendous effect on people's lives and instead sort of just navel-gazing at these, you know, what some random dude on Facebook said right. <laughs> as like the yeah. symbol of all oppression and inequality. And I don't know. What what do you think about that? Do you think these could be related to, well, at least in, in the leftist side of the conversation? Let me add something to your theory. Um, that, seems, that seems right to me. I think you're your thought is even strengthened when you rightly know, look, we have big problems, big, big, complicated problems. These are hard to solve. It's not even clear how to solve them. Here's a problem that I can solve. Mm -hmm. What Joe Sixpack mm -hmm. said on Facebook, right? <laughs> I, that's a problem. That's a, a bite-sized problem that I can take on. I can screenshot it. I can put it on Twitter and I can, you know, wash my hands at the end of the day and think I did something for justice. Here's my question for you. I mean, do you think these people actually believe they're solving the structural or the massive problems of inequality or racism? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that a lot of these people who are very invested in the cancel culture stuff do believe they are on a righteous crusade. Yeah. And... Um, maybe that's a little bit of self-delusion, but the fact that cancel culture has become so such a huge part of um, moral discourse, you know, part of it is that it feels good. People want some catharsis and just screaming mm -hmm. at each other. But I, I do think people convince themselves that by, you know, stopping the white woman who made a book about noodles or whatever, yeah. <laughs> Noodle Gate on Twitter this right. week, um, you know, they're ending this they're helping to end this bigger problem of white people taking credit for other cultures accomplishments or traditions um, when people from those cultures may not have the same opportunities. I really think they see that as part of solving the problem. Yeah. So, so they have in their mind, they, if you're right, they have in their mind a kind of theory of massive change in, in Part of what that theory involves is policing individual actions on a day-to-day -day basis. And, yeah. and the idea is that if we do this enough, with enough verve and vigor and outrage, then these it's like it's like instead of trickle down economics, it's like trickle up moral moral <laughs> change. Um, and I and I yeah. think that, you know there are moral reforms that happen that way. Uh, sure, yeah, there I, are. It's the question is. Is this the way to do it? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, they're, I mean, they're sacrificing a lot of um, liberal values at the altar. And that's why it makes me uncomfortable. Well, the her I don't <laughs> I don't support harassing people and, you know, dealing with problems this way either. But also, like, there's a lot of stuff about there's a lot of issues with free speech now about what people can say. I think the way that people parse out ideas, you know, there's just a lot of side effects of of this method it does feel like very thought and word policey yeah um but that's just my experience yeah. my experience might be 
somewhat extreme because of the time and place that I've sure. you know, had a lot of these conversations. Yeah. And you've seen some stuff too. I mean, you've, you know, you have a large platform and you talk about, and you have talked about for a long time, controversial things, or at least people, things that people find controversial. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. I do, I do think that dovetails into one of them too. The displays of outrage is very related. That's right. So there used to be this naive view, uh, um, even among, I think, some psychologists decades ago, that outrage, people expressed or felt outrage for what you might think of as more or less noble reasons, right? They really think this is something terrible, and they express themselves about how terrible it is because they're genuinely motivated by moral or social concerns. And in the last, mm -hmm. I would say, 10 or 15 years, that view of the psychology of outrage has been blown to bits. I mean, we, we just, oh. we just know that people express outrage for all kinds of reasons. So there are studies that suggest that one reason people express outrage is um, because they feel guilty. They feel guilty about doing the things themselves. You're right. A lot of motivated, uh, a lot of outrage is motivation mo motivated by just because it feels good. I mean, in certain ways, Nietzsche pointed this out very clearly, like outrage dominating your in your your enemy feels good. And this is one way actually people seek status is by dominating the outgroup. It, it lifts them up. And so, but we also have this, this body of research that suggests that outrage is also a way to signal your moral convictions. So your moral convictions are just the things that you care deeply about when it comes to morality. It might be, you know, being pro-choice. It might be being open borders. It might be family values, you know, whatever it is. We all, many of us have these moral convictions. And um, there's some psychological work that shows that outrage is a way to display or reveal your moral convictions. And so the, the basic inference is, the more things that outrage you, the more moral convictions you have, the more you care about morality. And oh, so, God. you know, if you see someone like outraged all the time, like one inference that many people make, especially if they're sort of on the same political side is like, damn, like this, like this person really cares and is really affected. And that none of that is to say that outrage is never appropriate. That outrage is never fitting, yeah. but when you're outraged, when, when you are as outraged about, as we record this August 20th, 2021, if you're as outraged about what's happening in Afghanistan right now, as you are to the writing of a book about noodles, something has gone wrong, right? You, you've diluted the signal that outrage can send. It's like a beacon that says, hey, something is really wrong here. Yeah. It, I feel like that's one of the worst downsides of all of this is just the dilution of things that matter. And that's why it really frustrates me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we look, we all want status. I mean, status is like one of the most basic human desires and drives. It's up there with desire for food and sex and security. People find status really important and it's just because of our evolutionary past we care deeply about status and now you put into the hands of these people something that they can seek status with every single moment of the day which i think we're just really having a hard time coordinating and figuring out what the right 
uses of outrage are. And also the media itself amplifies these uh, conversations, the most extreme and outraged ones, yeah. because it it's money. So it's hard not to feel cynical about the well, weaponization of outrage and yeah. you know, how we can use it effectively. I don't know if it's cynicism. I mean, I see what you mean. I, I find myself probably being too cynical sometimes. I don't know if it's cynicism so much as it's like a realistic view of human nature. I think a lot of people think that people on their side are basically good human beings. We're rational. You know, we assess evidence. My view is like much more like we're all messed up. We're bad reasoners. We're driven by uh, motivations and feelings that we're not even always aware of. And we're just a sad lot. And basically, the you know, the problem is you have... Tell it like it is. Well, you have, you know, you have people who are just not very good now interacting on a massive scale with, with perverse incentives. I mean, you, you, yeah. you, you mentioned the financial ones, but, you know, those are just as important as the incentives for status. And oftentimes they, they you know, they go together I mean, because the more money yeah. you make, the more status you have. Yeah. Or the more status you have, the more money you make. That's right. Line. And, you know, we, we, you know, we have this term grifter now, and I, I think it's probably over. It's overused. But it's yeah. true that there are people who have made an entire career and have gotten rich by being angry. That's not what anger's for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's not what it should be for, but it that's is right. a reality, I think, of the digital economy that anger is a powerful that's tool. Right. Yeah. So the last uh, major category of behaviors that you guys identify is being dismissive. And this one is incredibly frustrating to me because it is sort of a thought and conversation terminating behavior. Yeah, dismissiveness is a form of grandstanding because it's a way for me to treat you as benighted and below moral consideration. So because of yeah. your views or because of the things you said, that you're not you're not you aren't even worth engaging. You could say something and I could say, if you can't see, Lacey, why that is blah blah blah, I'm not engaging with you any further. And now I've just do said, better. That's right. Do, hashtag do better. Yes, exactly. Hashtag do better. And if you can't see that, that's your problem. And I'm not even going to explain to you what the problem is, because even if I did explain it to you, you wouldn't understand it or you're too morally backwards to appreciate it. And so there's this strategy, this mechanism that people use to set themselves up in a conversation so that they don't even have to have an interchange. They don't have to have an exchange of ideas. They don't have to debate the issues because I know that you have the wrong ideas and so you're a fascist and so why would I engage fascist, fascists or turfs or whatever? Like, I'm not going to have this conversation with you. And that can be a form of grandstanding because you're setting yourself up as having this enlightened moral status. And also just a very self-evident, like, wow, this is so obvious. You're that's so exactly stupid. Right. How that's could right. you even, how are you even asking this question right that's now? Right. I mean, that does actually feel a little gaslighty to me. Yes. <laughs> you know? I, like, yeah. Blaming it, that you're a complete crazy person for even thinking this could be more complex than it is. Right. Than they're saying, you know? Yeah. I think it can shade into a, a real form of gaslighting. I, I have done this before, actually. I can think of a few times where I said stuff like this online in the past and where I was coming from in those moments was that I didn't really have the energy to mm. have a conversation I had already had many times I think that's part of where the educate yourself line comes from mm. even though it's I don't do not think it's helpful at all if you're gonna put yourself out there you have to kind of 
in my opinion, people need to be ready to have those conversations over and over and over again because it comes with the territory. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think there is a sense of tiredness. You know, there's maybe a sense of powerlessness. And also people who feel like the position they're defending is the morally correct one, but don't really know how to defend it mm-hmm. um, in a more logical way, right? Like the the argument is emotional. You know, to say that grandstanding can take the form of dismissiveness is not to say that you have to like countenance and debate every single view that you come across, right? Yeah, so course, someone yeah. shows up and says, "Oh, you know, we should round up the we should round up the podcasters and put them in a, you know, put them in a gulag." I don't need to have I don't need to have like, "Oh, well, let's talk about that," right? I don't yeah, need to take time yeah. out of my day like I can dismiss you. So it's okay sometimes to be dismissive. Life is short. You don't have to debate every view and so on. And this is actually one reason why grandstanding and status seeking in discourse is so insidious because it's a quiet poison. Because for every single one of these forms of grandstanding I've mentioned, piling on, ramping up, trumping up, outrage, excessive outrage, there are, as it were, innocent analogs of all those behaviors, right? Yes. And so, yes. you know, someone... Someone, you know, you say, you know, slavery was bad. And I'm like, wait, it's just bad? Like, it's really, really bad, right? So there's a sense in which that's ramping up. But sometimes conversations just take that form where you actually do disagree with someone about how big of a problem something is. Mm-hmm. And so this is, you know, there's there's just no way, no foolproof method for determining whether someone is grandstanding. And this is why grandstanding is so quietly poisonous to discourse because people are able to under the cover of morality they cloak themselves in morality and thereby abusing moral discourse to pump to pump themselves up as you guys write about this behavior is not just annoying but it can also contribute to bigger political issues, right? Yeah, we have some evidence from our studies with the psychologist Josh Grubbs that grandstanding actually does cause polarization. And the basic mechanism, think back to ramping up, where people take more extreme positions to show that they're on the right right side of history. And if (laughs) you have these, like, iterate these conversations hundreds and hundreds of times a day, and over this period of weeks or months or years, people are going to be pushed further apart for two reasons. One, they're trying to win the battle in their own group, <laughs> right? But they're also trying to distance themselves further from the other group on the other side. And so you have yeah. two forces basically pushing each other aside. Now you might think, okay, so what's the problem with polarization or what's the problem with extremism? Extreme views aren't necessarily wrong. I think that's true. Here's the problem. The incentive for grandstanders is not to stop moving more extreme when they arrive at the true belief. The incentive is to stop when the belief stops getting you the attention or the retweets. And those are not the same thing, right? I mean, the things that you say online, they get you likes and retweets. Like what, how could that be evidence of truth just because your, your group likes it? Don't you know that the number of likes determines how true something is? <laughs> oh, internet law. I've made a horrible <laughs> mistake. Uh, yeah. So it's, you know, it happens on the left, you know, with our discussions of policing, it happens on the right with our discussions of masking or vaccines, 
where you basically have people push to continually push to corners. They're not tracking true beliefs. Like, and trying to impress people is not a reliable truth discovering mechanism. And furthermore, it just pushes moderates out of the conversation. Like, most moderates don't want to engage in this nasty conversation when they look at both sides and they think, okay, so my options are like abolish, like literally abolish police or like all police are great. Like those are my, like <laughs> yeah. those are my two options. Yeah. Most people are going to leave the chat. That's right. That. I'll go mow my it's yard. Right. I'm just not going to, I'm just not going <laughs> to engage. And so, and that's bad. Um, it's bad when you have voices not in the conversation because they have valuable evidence too. They have valuable insights. And when the conversation mm -hmm. gets dominated by, you know, the loudest extreme voices that probably aren't, neither of them are probably true in the first place. That's a, that's a recipe for a, a political and epistemic disaster. It's toxic stew. It's so yeah, bad. Yeah. You lay out pretty clearly how people who care about this problem can be a part of a positive change. <laughs> Several times in the book, you talk about not, you know, publicly shaming people That's right. when they're doing this. So here's a couple of reasons why it's bad to, to publicly accuse people of grandstanding. One is um, what philosophers call an epistemic problem, a problem with knowledge. So because it's really hard to tell whether someone's grandstanding, it's, it's like a flip of a coin, you know, uh, in any given case, whether you're right about whether someone's grandstanding. So you, you might think someone says something false, but then you don't like immediately accuse them of lying. At least you shouldn't, right? Um, because, you know, humans are very bad at detecting lies. I mean, in several controlled studies, humans are no better than the flip of a coin at figuring out whether someone's lying to them or not. And I think something's very similar with the grandstanding. It's just very hard, really hard to tell. And because it's really hard to tell, to accuse them is just, it's just morally bad. It's bad to go around accusing people of things that you're not sure they did. And there's also just a practical reason. So imagine how a company, and these, You've probably seen these conversations where people accuse one another of virtue signaling. They're totally unproductive because here's what happens. You know, Lacey says something and I say, oh, stop virtue signaling. And you say, oh, we'll stop virtue signaling about virtue signaling. You know, the next time that those conversations are productive will be the first time. People just get defensive when That's they're right. called out of anything. And That's just right. call out culture in yeah. general is so bad. It just causes people to hunker down. That's their right. Heels in, you know? Yeah. And it, and it really is a way is a way that people use to to dismiss their views, right? It's like, it can be, it can be a form of dismissiveness. So what should we do? Uh, well, one thing you could do is uh, give the book to all your friends. No, I'm kidding. One thing you could do is- <laughs> They should do that. Yes. Absolutely. Step one. <laughs> one thing you can do is um, turn your moral gaze upon yourself. Look yourself in the mirror and ask ourselves, am I doing this to do good or am I doing this to look good? Because those things are not always the same thing. The things that actually look good may not do any good and vice versa. The things that actually help people might get you in trouble and might mm -hmm. you might have to sacrifice some status or reputation to, to stand up and do yeah. what you think is right. So that's, yeah. that's one thing we suggest. The other thing that we suggest in the book is um, setting a good example. So one way that we know that no social norms can change is by having more people setting good examples of good behavior and then rewarding that good behavior. Setting up the incentive structure so that people who behave themselves and aren't status seeking and are able to suppress their desires to impress, those people are rewarded instead of the people who are you know, selling outrage all day long. 
And then the last thing that we encourage is a kind of social sanctioning. I mean, we do know that one way, one of the best ways to change social norms is to sanction people who behave badly. So how do you do that with grandstanders? It's made tricky because we, we've already argued ourselves into a corner, right? We don't, we don't think you should go around calling people grandstanders. But for, for a lot of people, the most natural way they think about fixing others is by criticizing or blaming, or as you mentioned, calling out. But there's another way to impose sanctions on people without even saying anything at all. And that's just ignoring them. <laughs> so, so, you know, again, this is a, this is a difficult collective action problem. But you know, if you, if you suspect that someone may be grandstanding, you're not doing any harm by ignoring them. You're not doing any more harm than if you just weren't on Twitter at all. One reason for optimism is that norms can change. People, people can change behavior. Social media is like in the span of human history. It's just extremely new. And we're just trying to figure out this new technology. All right, that was Dr. Brandon Warmke. If you'd like to go deeper on this topic, be sure to check out his book, Grandstanding. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you next time.